You can turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I just want to read a, a portion out of Psalm 55. David writes of the pain that he experienced from just stuff in life, sorrows, disappointments. And he says this in Psalm 55, verses 68. He says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Lo, then I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes life seems that way, doesn't it? It seems like a windy storm and a tempest, and you just want to shout, When's it going to end? We could probably, in our lives, point out several times when we've been in that time of turmoil, that time of trial. And we think if we could only escape from the problems at hand. The only, the only thing that consumes us is what's on our plate at the time. And we think if we could just get rid of this, everything would be fine. And we have a desire that's probably born within us to be delivered from this anguish that we face sometimes in life and we yearn sometimes for the comfort and the care in the face of that pain. And yet, a lot of times, what happens? It seems almost can't find it. It seems like the pain continues, the problems continue. And it seems like a paradox here, as most of these Beatitudes are in verse 4 of Matthew 5, when Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you're probably saying, that seems kind of odd. Why would he say happy or blessed are they that mourn? When you think of mourning, you probably think of, first thing that pops in your head, head is probably a death. Probably you've been at a, at a graveside or a funeral or a viewing. And you've gone through the process of mourning a loved one who's passed away and gone beyond. The teaching of Matthew 5, verse 4, seems totally opposite of what we experience in everyday life. Because the, the world in which we live is just kind of mad with pleasure. Everything is out to seek and to serve the big me that's residing within us. That's all that matters. And it's kind of like we have a entertainment park mentality today. We spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of money, we spend a lot of energy in the, trying to seek after entertainment. Now, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. Uh, but when it gets to the point where all you want to do is enjoy life and you want to put sorrow and you want to put pain as far away from you as possible. Jesus said this in Luke 6.25. He said, Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And I think we've become so lighthearted about life in general that we forget that there is some seriousness to the life in which God has given us. God has given us a purpose, beloved. He has left us here for a reason. And if we don't know that, we're missing the point of our existence. The chief end in, in, in man's life is to what? To glorify God. And so here Jesus says, Well, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, how can those who mourn be happy? That's what that word means, blessed. It means happiness. You don't think of being happy and mourning in the same, in the same frame of thought. You just don't. Well, it's interesting. As I was studying, there's nine different Greek verbs in the New Testament that speak of grief. Nine. Not just one or two or three or four or five. There's nine of them. And so it seems that if there's nine verbs that 
kind of translate over to our idea of grief or mourning. And there's nine ways to express the concept of grief. It's kind of an indication that it's a pretty big part of our lives. It's not something that we just pass by and, oh, you know, I don't deal with that. We all deal with it. And sooner or later, we will deal with it. And history really has been a story of tears even from the very beginning, if you stop and you think about it. In Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, Jesus says this, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And then he says this at the end. He says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Just the beginning of sorrows. It's just the beginning of mourning. The history of man will kind of peak out with an incredible time of sorrow and mourning. We don't like to think of that. Because in general, most of us probably like to get up and be happy. You know, like the song says, don't worry, be happy. You know, you don't wake up in the morning saying, man, I hope I have a miserable day today so I can just be sorrowful and mourn all day long over my situation. If you do wake up that way, we need to talk after the service and maybe we can help you out. But most of us, for the most part, even though we're going through a hard time, we wake up thinking it's a brand new day in Christ. He's forgiven my sin. Today's a new day. I can serve him in different ways. Who knows what is going to behold me today in this adventure I call the Christian life. Well, there's different kinds of sorrow, if you think of it. There's human sorrow. That's kind of the first thing I think I wrote down there. Human sorrow. Well, what can cause human sorrow? It can, cause, it can be caused by conditions in our life. That's just part of life. Um, when a person expresses pain and sorrow, we release the pressure valve that God has put within us. And that burden of pain and, and, and releasing that sorrow is, is really a healing process. And we're all different. Some of us cry at the drop of a hat. Some of us hardly ever cry. But that's a God-given ability that He put within us. There's nothing wrong with shedding a tear. Abraham wept when his wife died in Genesis 23. And he was releasing grief through his tears. In Psalm 42, verses 1 to 3, Psalmist writes this, As the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after, me, after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Have you ever had a night like that? All you've done is cried while they continually say to me, where is thy God? See, the psalmist is releasing his sorrow over the apparent absence of God in his life. That's a normal way of dealing with sorrow. It comes from feeling estranged from the Lord. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul said to Timothy, I thank my God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembered you in prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee mindful of thy tears. Apparently, Timothy was very special and, and he apparently wept because he was terribly discouraged. Jeremiah 9.1, God called Jeremiah to preach to Israel about a judgment 
And the prophet preached the message with tears. He said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Paul, when he met with the elders in the Ephesian church in Acts 20, verse 31, he said, Remember, for the space of three years I have ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And I think sometimes we forget that aspect of the Christian life. That it's okay to weep. That it's okay to cry. It's okay to let out your emotions. That's how God meant it to be. Earnest love can make a, a person weep. There's a lot of different things that we can weep over. We can cry just because we're thankful and we're grateful. People cry for different reasons, whether it's out of love, out of concern, disappointment, loneliness. You remember our Lord wept at the grave of Lazarus because he loved him. He was laying down an example. He wept over the city of Jerusalem because he had passion on, compassion on them because he, he looked at them and he said, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. Mary Magdalene wept because Jesus was dead. See, tears are, are God's given way to release the pain and the hurt that's in our heart. There's nothing wrong with that. And different people deal with it different ways. I mean, I've been to a lot of services, a lot of funerals and things, and, and a lot of times, you know, you can't get up there when you're directing a funeral and, and just weep through the whole thing. And just because of my personality or whatever, I can compartmentalize certain things. But I'll tell you what, I'll be driving down 680 in my car all by myself and turn on the radio or a Christian station or something and hear something and just tears start flooding down my, my cheeks. I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? Am I weird or what? Why am I crying? Well, it triggers something. There's nothing wrong with that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4 says there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. So it may be just the issues in life that cause this human sorrow. It may be the result of sin. Sometimes when we don't get what we want, when there's unfulfilled desire, someone might mourn because they can't satisfy their own lust. Uh, one of David's sons wanted to sexually defile his sister in 2 Samuel 13, 2. And it says that he mourned until he became sick. Because he couldn't get that what he wanted. King Ahab mourned because he couldn't have the vineyard that belonged to Naboth in the first kings. So sometimes we mourn as a result of sin because we can't get it, what we want. Sometimes there's an unwillingness to let go. Some people mourn excessively when they lose a loved one. And sometimes it can even push your people over the edge. To the point where they can't even process things anymore. Because they love that person so much and now they're gone and, and something just happens in their, their thought, in their brain, and it, they're never the same after that. We all know people like that. Unwillingness to let go, to trust God. Also, guilt as an atonement. Some people indulge in excessive sorrow because of guilt. They feel guilty. So they mourn in hope of somehow earning some atonement for their sin. That's what happened in 2 Samuel verses, or chapters 15 to 19. Absalom drove his father David out of Jerusalem and planned to destroy him and his army. You remember in the battle. 
But when the battle was fought, Absalom lost and he, he died. He was slain. And before the battle, David told his soldiers, deal gently for my sake with the young men, even with Absalom, who was his enemy at the time. He wanted a vile, rebellious man to be dealt with in a gentle way against God's wishes. And then he was told that his son was dead. And he cried, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would God I had died for thee. His love for his son is understandable, but his thinking in that process was clouded. Israel needed David to rule, not the proud, egotistical Absalom that was ruling, and God needed to take care of the situation, and he did. So sometimes that's the result of that. And so that's the, the kind of human sorrow that we all face at times. But there's another kind of sorrow. There's a godly kind of sorrow. You know, there's an Arab proverb that says this, all sunshine makes a desert. Stop and think about that. All sunshine makes a desert. If your life is just all sunshine, look out. You may find yourself in the middle of a desert. It's, it's important to understand that Sorrow is something that comes into our lives, and it comes into our lives for a purpose. In Matthew 5, verse 4, it isn't talking about feeling better after weeping or being strengthened as a result of mourning. It's not talking about anything like that. Jesus is not talking about the kind of sorrow the world thinks about. Whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, He wasn't talking about that. He was speaking of godly sorrow. And there is such a thing as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow begins when we're sorrowful over our sin. That's the first step. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. But the sorrow of the world works death. A person can weep bitterly because of loneliness, because of discouragement, because of some earnest love or maybe an unfulfilled lust that they're frustrated they can't have, but that kind of sorrow is never going to bring about eternal life. It's never going to get someone saved. The only kind of mourning that results in salvation is a godly sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. And that's what Matthew 5.4 is talking about. Jesus isn't saying that the lonely or the discouraged are blessed, but He says, but only those who are distressed and they're mournful about their sin, they will be comforted. So it, it begins with a sorrow over sin. And it, and it really starts even with that. The second thing there, it begins with a poverty of spirit, as we talked about last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked extensively about what that means to be poor in spirit. A person who's poor in spirit knows that he's spiritually bankrupt. He knows that his flesh, inside his flesh, dwells no good thing, as Romans 7.18 says. See, when you're convinced intellectually that you are spiritually bankrupt, then you will respond emotionally by mourning. That's how it happens. Those who are poor in spirit recognize that spiritually, they're nothing. Nothing at all. As we talked about last week, they're like cowering beggars putting a hand out for a crumb. There's nothing. They have nothing. No resources. They have no capacity to help themselves. A person can't enter the kingdom of God, can't enter Christ's kingdom apart from being overwhelmed and having that sense of spiritual poverty. 
you've never recognized that spiritual poverty, if you've never recognized that you don't have what it takes to get saved, you don't have it, beloved, it's questionable whether you're a Christian. If you're thinking here today that somehow you're sitting here because of some decision that you made and somehow you earned your salvation or somehow God looked down and said, oh, I need this person in my kingdom and there's some good within you, I would really stop and, and really look hard at your own salvation. George MacDonald said this about the poor in spirit. He said, the poor... The beggars in spirit, the humble men of heart, the unambitious, the unselfish, those who never despise men and never seek their praises, the lowly who see nothing to admire in themselves, therefore cannot seek to be admired by others. The men who give themselves away, these are the freedom, the free men of the kingdom. These are the citizens of the New Jerusalem. The men who are aware of their own essential poverty. Not the men who are poor in friends or poor in influence or poor in acquirements or poor in money, but those who are poor in spirit, who feel themselves poor creatures, who know nothing to be pleased with themselves for and desire nothing to make them think well of themselves, who know that they need much to make their life worth living, to make their existence a good thing, to make them fit to live. These humble ones are the poor whom the Lord calls the blessed. When a man says, I am low and worthless, then the gate of kingdom begins to open to him. For there enter the true. And this man has begun to know the truth concerning himself. See, only a beggar in spirit can say, like Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am undone. Only somebody who's destitute can say, as the person in Luke 5, 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Or after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, he saw how spiritually debased he was, how spiritually poor he was. And he wrote in Psalm 51, 5, In sin did my mother conceive me. It's been with me from the beginning. Even Job, in Job 42, 5 and 6, he mourned deeply over his sin. His soul was, was wretched to its very depths. Job was a very rich man who was humbled. And he was made to realize who he was compared to God. He said this in, in Job 42, 5 to 6, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust in ashes. David mourned deeply over his sin. Job was a, a righteous man, it says, but he even came to a point where he, he, he abhorred himself in comparison to God. It also involves deep internal agony, this idea of mourning, this godly sorrow. That Greek word translated mourn there in Matthew 5, Pentheo, it's the strongest of all Greek words in the New Testament to express grief. Out of all nine, this is the strongest one. And it often refers to mourning for the dead. Kind of a, a passionate mourning expressed for a loved one who was lost. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used of Jacob's grief when he was told about his son, Joseph, had, had died. 
The form of the words used in Mark 16.10 of the disciples as they mourned and wept over Jesus. It's also used to describe those who bewail the death of their commerce when they, they lost everything in the destruction of Babylon uh, uh, of the Great during the tri tribulation in Revelation 18.11. It conveys this idea of a deep inner agony, not just some, oh, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, I feel bad today. It's not just an external grief. It's something that, that wretches the soul deep within. In Psalm 32, David said this, When I kept silence about my sin, my bones became old through my roaring all day long. For day and night thy hand is heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. In Psalm 51, David agonized over his sin with Bathsheba. He wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. See, he was devastated by the effects of sin on his relationship with God. That's why he could write, Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me, O God. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not the Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, David mourned over the sins and he confessed it to God and he was cleansed. Therefore, he could say in Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is what? Forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's what we have in Christ. We have the ability to have our sins forgiven, our transgressions covered. See, the reasons those who mourn over sin are happy is because they realize that their sins are forgiven. If you're not mourning over your sin, then what do you have to forgive? Nothing. See, everyone else in the world lives without that relief from the guilt of sin. We as Christians have that relief in Christ. It also results in forgiveness the comfort mentioned in Matthew 5.4 doesn't come from your sorrow. He's not saying because you're sorrowful, you will get comfort from that. But it comes from God's response to your sorrow. So you have to be sorrowful first before God can respond to you in your sorrow. If you're not sorrowful, if you're not mourning, then He can't respond to you in the right way. That's why when we bottle up sins within us, it ruins our life. But confession results in the freedom and joy of forgiveness. That's what the Word says. David experienced tears of loneliness, rejection, discouragement, defeat. But nothing broke his heart as much as the way his sin separated him from God. And I think we've lost some of that today. We've lost some of that. We forget James 4 verses 8 to 10, where it says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. See, as believers, you may not understand this, and you may not agree with this, but we should really be crying more than we're laughing in life. In fact, I think today in our churches, it's too frivolous. There's too many, you know, celebratory atmosphere. There's no grieving. There's no mourning over sin. 
See, no one will enter the kingdom of God without that attitude, without that attitude of mourning, with that sense of grief over the sin in his or her life. You're not going to get there. It's not going to happen. But that kind of mourning will produce happiness because you sense God's forgiveness. Because when we come to God as we're mourning and we're sorry for our sin and we confess it, then He can respond in a just and righteous way and say, Hey, I forgive you on the basis of my Son, whom you've trusted. But if we go to God with a proud heart, we think we got it all together spiritually and we don't deal with sin anymore. That's, you know, that was earlier in my Christian life. Now I just kind of walk on water everywhere I go and, and sin's not an issue. we got problems. And we need to stop. And we need to check our heart and we need to ask God for a fresh view of our sin. What put Jesus on the cross? See, as long as someone laughs over sin, I don't think they're going to be cleansed. I don't think they understand the, the totality of what Christ did when He died for our sin. Stop and think about it. I mean, we're all guilty of this in some way. Do you laugh when you see evil? Do you laugh at ungodly jokes or television shows? Do you go to the movies? Well, they're, you know, I'm an adult. It's rated R. It doesn't matter. So what if there's some nudity? I'm a big boy. I can deal with it. Some cuss words. I think we're more, more concerned about the F word and S word and other words like that than somebody using God's name in vain. Oh, they just, you know, there's a couple... Christ, you know, this, or, you know, God damn it, or something like that, you know. In the, in the, but other than that, it was pretty good. We need to stop, and we need to, we need to get a fresh perspective, beloved. Proverbs 2.14 says that there are some who delight in the perverse of the wicked. They delight in it. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 says there's those who take pleasure in unrighteousness. And unfortunately, there's some within the church that do that. And they do it because they think that somehow God's grace covers all that. And it's okay. It's not okay. It grieves the heart of God. And I think today in the church we have a defective view of sin. I think as a result, the world often thinks of the Christian life as a joke. They look at the church and you know, they make fun of it. Oh, yeah, that guy goes to church. Yeah, I saw him at the same show I went to. Or I saw him at the same bar I was at. And that's not to say that Christians shouldn't have fun. I'm all for that. Let's have all the fun we can have. Proverbs 17.22 says, A merry heart does good, like medicine. But I think we're way out of balance today. And I think like... Too many professing Christians, we don't mourn over our sins. Conviction of sin is, is necessary. It's, it's, it's part of our salvation. It's the path to righteousness. It's the path to blessedness. Happiness isn't found in books on counseling. Happiness isn't found there. Happiness is found when you come to a point in your life where you're mourning over your sin before a holy God. Fifth thing, it requires a specific response. People respond to a, a knowledge of personal sin in different ways. Some, like the Pharisees, they just deny their sinners. Oh, I'm not a sinner. I got it all together. That's what they did. They put on this phony front and they make people think that, that everything's perfect. 
in their lives. Others, they admit they're sinners, and then they try to change themselves by some self-determined effort. They look within themselves and say, I've just got to make myself better, and then I'll be okay. Others may even kill themselves, like Judas did. The proper reaction upon realizing one's own bankruptcy spiritually is depend on who? On God and upon His grace and upon His mercy. Cry out to Him, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what the prodigal son did. When he sensed his sin, he didn't deny it. He didn't deny the circumstances he was in, or he didn't try to adapt to it. Nor did he just give up and kill himself there in the pig's trough. He didn't do that. He admitted his sinfulness, and then what did he do? He returned to the Father. And he received the grace of his Father. I think the problem today in our churches is many people think that they're Christians even though they never came mourning to God over their sin. And you can discern this pretty simply when you ask how they know you're they're Christians. Someone says, well, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? How many times have you heard, well, you know, I signed that card in church. <laughs> or I walked down an aisle. Or I prayed a prayer one time at BBS. Or I did this or I did that. What's their assurance based on? It's based on something that happened in the past. But I'll tell you here today, the New Testament doesn't speak of walking an aisle. The New Testament doesn't speak of signing a card. The New Testament doesn't have a, 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 a counselor at the altar telling you that you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. It says if you're a Christian, the New Testament says if you're a Christian, your life will what? It will show it. Because you're transformed, you're changed by the grace of God. In 2 Corinthians 12.21, Paul expressed the fear that when he visited the Corinthians, he would cry over those who had no sorrow for their sin. See, God demands that sin be recognized, and He also demands that we mourn over it, and He also demands that we repent of it. And it's not some self-pity party. Oh, you know, it's a turning away from your sin to God. That's what repentance is. But happiness does come after true mourning. Psalm 51:17 says, "A broken and contrite heart, O God, will thou will not despise." We need to stop. We need to check our hearts. Are we broken before God? Are we contrite? Are we standing here before God in our church saying, Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. I, I'm a Christian. I, I do this, I do that, I do that. It's also a lifelong sorrow. Some people don't understand this. A true Christian mourns over his sin all his life. It doesn't stop. See, some people think Paul's account of this struggle that he was having in Romans 7 indicates that somehow this struggle ended, that Paul somehow reached perfection and that he didn't deal with sin anymore. Until you come to Romans 8. And in Romans 8, it shows that he, he, he came to a point of never having a problem. He came to a point of, of this sin never going away. He had this problem forever. That's another, I guess what I'm trying to say. In verses 15 to 25 in Romans, he says, That which I do not understand, that which I do, I understand not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. Is it no more I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me? For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, he says, dwells no good thing. For to will is present in me. I want to do it, but how to perform it, that which is good, I cannot do it. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. This doesn't sound like a man of perfection. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The fight doesn't stop until the day we meet Jesus face to face. That's where we're at. Matter of fact, even further on in Romans chapter 8, verses 22-23, he says, I know the whole creation groans and travails in pain. Not only they, but ourselves also, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, he says, waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. Why? Because then we'll be free from sin for the first time. Paul obviously was sick of his own sin. That's why he said in Philippians 1.23, you know what? For me, it's better to go and be with the Lord. Then you don't have to deal with this. The moment you die, your body's transformed into a glorified body and you're in the presence of God and you don't have to deal with sin anymore, period. That's why we look forward to that. That's why we yearn for that. 2 Corinthians 5.2 says, In this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. One other thing here. It's characterized by confession. We know this verse well. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, if we say the same thing about our sin that God says. That's what confession means. Saying the same thing. He is faithful, it says, and He's also just to forgive us our sin. See, one sign of whether a person is truly a Christian or not is that he or she continually confesses their sin to God. Continually. Some people teach that, oh, you don't have to do that. You know, uh, you don't have to confess your sins anymore. It's just all forgiven and don't worry about it. Beloved, if, that, if that's your understanding of Scripture, you're, you're sorely wrong. See, because the Bible says that it says, if we confess our sins. It's almost, you could read that, since we confess our sins. It's just something that happens in our lives. We're not perfect. So when we sin, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to confess it. We're supposed to go to God and say, look, I blew it. I'm sorry. I know this grieves your heart. It grieves my heart too. Thank you for your forgiveness. And then move on. And that should be an ongoing thing. Bill Bright referred to it as spiritual breathing in one of his little books. You know, when we, when, we, when we sin, basically, we're, we're yielding our body over to the flesh again. And what he says spiritual breathing is, is you know what? We, we exhale that sin. We, we confess it to God. We repent of it. And then we inhale a new filling of the Spirit. We ask Christ, we ask the Spirit to take control of our life once again. And I don't know about you, but, I mean, that continues in my daily routine. You know, I couldn't even count the amount of times that that happens. Because that's where we're at. Well, what's the result then of mourning over our sin? If we're called to mourn over our sin, what's the result? It says those who express sorrow for their sins, it says, will receive comfort. See, they're, they're, they're happy, they're blessed, not because they mourn, but because they're comforted. But they're not going to be comforted unless they're mourning. 
See, there's no happiness in the sorrow of the world because it isn't over sin. It's over it's human sorrow like we talked about. You notice there that it says they. That pronoun translated they in, in verse 4 of Matthew 5, it's placed there emphatically. And it, it's basically saying only those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. You're not going to receive the comfort of God if you're mourning over something else. This doesn't work that way. And we receive comfort from above. There's several verses that we could look at. We're not going to take time. They're written there in your outline. He helps us. God hears us. He meets our needs, the Bible says. He's always there at our side, admonishing us, consoling us, strengthening us, forgiving us. Paul calls him the God of all comfort. We have that comfort from above. We also have this comfort throughout the whole life. Jesus said, well, I'm going to go away for a while, but I'm going to send you what? What did he say? I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And He's going to be beside you. He's going to reside within you. And as believers, we're to comfort one another. We're to, to reach out to one another. And that, that comforting happens throughout their life. See, it sounds kind of there, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It sounds like a promise of comfort in the future somewhere. Kind of like, we're just mourn now, and then eventually, you know, when the trial goes away, you'll be comforted. That's not the idea. The idea is, as you're mourning in life, as you're sorrowful in life for your sin, God is over here on a parallel track, picture railroad tracks. He's on the other track, going right beside you, comforting you. And when your sorrow stops, His comfort stops. That's how it's really viewed. It has the idea that the comfort runs alongside of the mourning. As long as you continue to mourn, you'll be continually comforted. But when you stop mourning, when your heart grows proud, and you realize, well, you know, I'm better than this. I don't need to be grieving over my sin. It's forgiven and, you know, everything else. Well, his comfort is going to stop in your life, and you're going to notice it. Now, it is true that we will receive comfort in the eternal kingdom. Revelation 21.4 says that God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are past. But those who are truly Christians today in this age in which we live on a daily basis, they mourn over their sin. And they receive comfort now over, as a result of their mourning. Happiness comes to those who mourn because their sadness leads to comfort. You remember when Jesus said in Matthew 11:28, "Come unto me, all ye what that are what that labor and are heavy laden." And what I'm going to I'm going to load more on you. I'm going to give you a bunch of do's that you can't, and I'm going to give you a bunch of don'ts that you want to. And you know I'm just going to burden down. No, He says, "Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what rest." He will give you rest. See, people don't look for rest until they know they're carrying a burden. You know, when you're, when you're out on a hike and it's, it's a steep climb and it's the hot temperature and, you know, you've you got somebody with you and they're not carrying nothing and you're carrying everything. You've got the tent, you've got the backpack, you've got everything and you're just loaded down like a mule. There's going to come a point in time where you're going to stop and you're going to look at this other person and go, you know what, do you think you can help? you think you can give me a hand here? But you know what, until at the beginning of the hike, you may be, yeah, I can do this, no problem, you know. But at the end of the hike, you're looking for some, you're looking for some rest. Why? Because you're, you're kind of carrying this burden and you've realized it. See, people need to feel the weight of their sin. 
before they can come to Christ. They have to feel the weight of their sin. They have to feel the anguish of their sin, the sorrow of their sin. And then Christ comes along and says, you know what? I want to take that away from you. And I want to replace it with my yoke, which is easy. And my burden, which is light. Matthew 11.30. And that comes from our freedom in Christ. See, the standards He sets and the, the, the freedom that we have in Christ are far easier than carrying the weight of your own sin. It just is. And when a believer confesses his or her sin daily to the Lord, what happens? We're comforted as a result of that. Which is quickly, how, how can we truly mourn over our sin? What hinders us from mourning over our sin? I think, first of all, love of sin. <laughs> when we love sin, we don't want to give it up. It turns our heart into something hard and callous. A despair. A person in despair may believe God will not forgive what, forgive what he's done. And so despair drives one to undervalue God's power and grace. That can hinder our mourning over sin. Conceit. A person thinks he's not bad. I'm not as bad as the guy across the street. Or even presumption. Presumption is that which cheapens God's grace. You know, it's, it's kind of like looking at, at, at the cross and saying, well, he died for all my sins, so I'm just going to presume on that. So when I go out and sin, why do I have to feel sorry over it? Because it's already taken care of. That's what presumption is. However, Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him for he will abundantly pardon. See, if a wicked person does not forsake his way, then there's a reason to believe that he was never pardoned. <laughs> Procrastination. Well, one of these days I'll get around to it. James 4... 4.14 says, you don't know what's going to hold the next day. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I got called out last week on a chaplain call and went up to this house here in Emerald Hills. and just, this, this man went to bed and never woke up. His wife tried to wake him up in the morning. He was, I think they were both probably in their 70s, 80s. And... Uh, she said he was cold and he had passed away. And uh, she was grieving over that. And she thought, you know, last night we were out on the patio and we were having such a good time. We had neighbors over, some of them which were there. They said, we can't believe this. This guy never went to the doctor. He was healthy as a horse. And the wife kept on saying, I should have been the one that died. I'm the one taking all the medication. I'm the one that's having all the physical problems. This isn't fair. And I reminded her of this verse. I said, you know what? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We just don't know. And I don't know where they were spiritually. I don't think they were believers, but one of their daughters was, and she was saying that they're, they're Catholic, but whatever, and the, the daughter was a born-again Christian, and she was sharing the Word, and I was sharing the Word. And, but, you know, we plan things out, and sometimes we realize that, you know what, we could be gone today. Are we ready to meet our Maker today? Procrastination. Excessive merriment, just, you know, party attitude, just, hey, you know, just have fun while we're here. Um, you know, we got to be careful. we just got to be careful. What helps us in this whole process? I think, first of all, an understanding of the cross. A person with a pattern of sin in their life doesn't understand the significance of the cross. 
It's understanding that the work of Christ on the cross doesn't break up his stony heart. If, if, it doesn't, if that doesn't work, nothing will. Take a look at the cross. Look at how much Christ has done for you. That puts our sin in perspective. And even an understanding of sin itself. David said this, Psalm 51.3, My sin is ever before me. Isaiah has already said, said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Jeremiah wept over his sin of his people in Jeremiah 9.1. Peter said to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a what? Sinful man, O Lord. Paul said that he was the chief of all sinners. See, those are men who are actually aware of their own sinfulness. Sin tramples on God's law. It slights His love and blessedness. It grieves His Spirit and it affects us drastically on a daily basis. In these filthy garments, originally we were made in God's image, we become like beasts that perish. And only God can restore that former glory and give us that heart of contriteness and that brokenness that we need. Let me ask you, are you sensitive to sin in your own life? Or are you passive about sin in your life? Do you laugh at, take pleasure in sin? Some people never deal with their sin. They're just, they never deal with it. They don't want to. They think too highly of themselves. They continue in dishonesty. They continue to fail to pray. They dwell on evil thoughts or plans. Fail to love. Are you sensitive to your own sin? Are you also sensitive to the sins of others? That's also a sign. Throughout the Word of God, we're explicit with examples of people being sensitive to the sins of others. Did you sit here this morning, do you know joy in your life? Do you know the peace that God gives? You know that real peace and that, that happiness that we're talking about? The divine forgiveness, divine comfort comes only to those who are willing to put themselves in, in a state of mourning over their sin. And to, to mourn over your sin, you first have to recognize that it's there. I hope and I pray that God will bring us to that point where our sin disgusts it. It really allows us to be sorrowful. It helps us understand who we truly are before God, that we need His grace even more each and every day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the Apostle Paul who was such an incredible individual and yet even he in, his, in Your Word says that he is the chief of all sinners. Lord, we thank You that even though our sin is ever before us, that You did grant us a passageway out of it, that You did allow a way in which we could be forgiven, a way in which we could taste of your grace, your mercy, your comfort. Lord, this verse isn't saying that we should just go around, pour ashes on our head and, oh, I'm a Christian, woe is me, I'm all mourning, I'm sorrowful. No, it's not saying. But deep inside our heart, we, do know, we need to know who we are. We need to understand that we should be sorrowful for our sin. We shouldn't walk around with a strut in our step thinking that because we walked an hour, or we signed a card or we said some prayer at one point in life that that makes us something in the kingdom of God because it doesn't. A Christian is someone who lives out their Christian life each and every day. And as those songs said, we desire to know you more and more and more each and every day. We should see you at work in our lives more and more each and every day. Our sins should become more and more evident to us each and every day. And our willingness to come to you and confess it and repent of it and have the filling of your spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, to cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's none here that's perfect. All have fallen short of God's glory, the Bible says. We all need God's grace. If you haven't yet cried out to God to be merciful to you, to be gracious to you, express that desire to Him this morning. He'll meet you right where you're at. He'll transform your life even right before your eyes. Give you new desires. Give you new goals in life. Or just make everything new, the Bible says. Old things will pass away. All will become new. I pray that you would cry out to Him to ask Him to save you. We thank you, Lord. We pray your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name.